You're back at the Sacred Birth Circle. Today's guest is going to share some really stunning stories that prove that stillbirths can be prevented. I really hope that you will listen to the full episode and share it on social media so that we can help inform other families and continue to save babies because stillbirth is a crisis and we need to stop it. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the Sacred Birth Circle. My name is Anna Vick. Today's guest is somebody I've been waiting for all week to speak with. I'm so excited that we have her here for you today. She was actually a guest at the Push for Empowered Pregnancy Symposium. So if you didn't watch that, feel free to go back on YouTube and the Push for Empowered Pregnancy page and you can watch her presentation. But today she's going to be speaking about the same similar topic because I think it's very empowering and relevant for parents to know some of the stories that she's experienced in her career, which has been very vast. And uh, she's actually seen the fact that we can save babies from stillbirth. And mm -hmm. so she's going to share some of those close call situations that she's been a part of and really why she became so interested in this. So I'm going to let her introduce herself and then we'll go into some of these stories. Thank you so much for the introduction and for the invitation to be here. I'm very um, impressed uh, with your organization and moms who are attempting to raise awareness in terms of how stillbirths can be prevented. So my name is Dr. Linda Burke. I am a board certified OBGYN physician. I'm an author of a prenatal book. Um, I have been an OBGYN physician for over three decades. And what inspired me to become passionate about the prevention of stillbirths um, goes back to 1991, probably when some of you were not even born. Um, I was a chief resident in my residency program and it was two months before I was going to finish my training and step out into the world as an attending physician. And at that time, uh, my team and I had been taking care of a woman who was in her 30s. Um, she was a Latina. She actually came to our hospital because she heard that we were good and she had some complications. She was my hero because um, we were close in age. I was recently married and she had done something that I was attempting to do and that was to become pregnant. So she became my muse and my team and I watched her very, very carefully. And there came a time when it was time for her to be delivered. We were looking at laboratory studies and all the data said, okay, it's time. She should be delivered. So we, had, we were not on call that night and we had to sign her care to another team. Um, and the chief resident of that team was, um, um, he came from a somewhat privileged background. He was a son of an OBGYN physician. His wife was pregnant with twins uh, via IVF. And um, at times we bumped heads, but he was the chief resident on call that night. So I went home, I came back the next morning to work to find out that my patients had experienced a stillbirth. And I was outraged. Oh, no. I was outraged because we worked 
so hard to call the moment when the baby was supposed to be born. And I felt like I had completely failed this woman, even though we were not on call that night. Um, I was so angry that I almost jeopardized my career because he and I got into a very heated discussion in a very small on-call room. And another colleague had to come and basically jump in between the two of us. That's how angry I was. And it was a teachable moment for me because I realized that my job as an OBGYN physician is not only to treat um, women, but to also advocate for them and to teach them things to look for. So fast forward um, years later, um, I had a patient who, it was her first pregnancy and everything was going fine. And at around 34 to 35 weeks, uh, she showed up to our clinic and I did her measurements, everything was good. I listened to her baby's heartbeat and which was, for, it was normal. And then as I'm wiping um, the jelly off of her belly, I asked the question that I always ask my patients based on that experience I had in, from 1991. And that was, okay, so everything's good. You feel the baby move. And she had this, I'll never forget that look. She had a sad look on her face and she looked down and she, shook her head no. And I paused, I said, you don't feel the baby move? And she shook her head no again. Now at that moment, I had two choices. I could say, all oh, the data is good. We heard the baby's heartbeat, um, measurements are good. But based on that 1991 experience, I heard her truth was she did not feel her baby move. So off she went to labor and delivery. And when she got to labor and delivery, they put her on a monitor, a fetal monitor. I guess they didn't like what they saw because then the next step was an ultrasound and they still didn't like what they saw. And then they did a C-section. And when they did the C-section, the umbilical cord was wrapped not only around the baby's neck, but around the baby's entire body. Goodness. And that is why she was not feeling her baby move. And at the time, I didn't know any of this. I knew that I had sent her to labor and delivery and I didn't get any feedback from labor and delivery. Two weeks later, she shows up um, to our clinic. And so I said, okay, so what, you know, you had a section, she said, yeah. And this is the part that astounded me. She said, I dreamt 
the night before I came into your office that my baby died. And I have been sad all day. Yeah. And, and I looked at her and the baby was fine. Okay, mm-hmm. baby was, was perfectly fine. But I looked at her and we both became tearful. And I said, why didn't you tell me? And she just shrugged her head, shrugged her shoulders. And she just said, I don't know. And to me, that was such a meaningful awareness that, you know, I'm going to talk in a way that is different from my from my colleagues because I look at um, birth as a very spiritual experience. Me too. And I um I look at babies as um as miracles. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about how two cells can unite and eventually form this creation, it is nothing short of a miracle. And so when she said that she had this dream the night before, I, I was I was astonished. And I <clears throat> I told her, I said, and this is a lesson for both of us because I never, ever, ever want you to doubt yourself again or feel like you cannot share those types of experiences because they are helpful. So that's um, a scary moment that had a happy ending. Right. Um, I had another patient who um, was, it was not her first pregnancy, but she was pregnant and it was uh, in her late third trimester. I think she was like 39 weeks. And she asked me if she could go on vacation. And I said, no, <laughs> that's not a good idea. Um, and I went through the reasons why. And for some reason, I ordered an ultrasound for her. And three days later, the ultrasound came back to my, on my desk, uh, reporting that there was low amniotic fluid. So immediately I call labor and delivery to find out if she had delivered. Now, let me stop here because low amniotic fluid is an emergency because if it reaches a certain level, five or below, the patient has to be delivered because the baby no longer has a cushion around its umbilical cord. Mm -hmm. So I call labor and delivery and I said, okay, so uh, Ms. So-and-so delivered, right? And they checked their records and they said, no. And I said, what do you mean, no? I'm looking at her, her report. The radiologist should have called me, okay, to let me know, but he did not. <clears throat> so I said, well, let me call her because she probably delivered at another hospital. I called <clears throat> the patient and she did not, pardon me. <clears throat> I called the patient and she, there was no response. I left a message on her voicemail machine. Then she calls me back the next day <clears throat> and she says, okay, so, you know, what's the problem? And I said, well, where did you have the baby? And she said, no. And I said, well, you need to come into my office right away. And she said, I can't. 
And I said, what do you mean you can't? And she said, I'm in another state. So then at that point, I said, okay, I want you to find the nearest hospital. I want you to go to labor and delivery. And this is what I want you to tell them that your AFI, your amniotic fluid index is less than, I think it was five. I get a call from <clears throat> this hospital from the labor and delivery department. They repeated the ultrasound and there was zero fluid wow. around the baby. And they ultimately did a C-section. And of course the baby was fine. So these are examples of possible adverse outcomes that were prevented because of a heightened awareness, number one, of fetal movement, and number two, of me following up to make sure that everything is as it's supposed to be. And again, I'm a boomer. I train pre-managed care. And this is how we used to manage some, not all. This is how we used to manage our patients. I have another story about a colleague of mine who had a patient who was roughly like 33 weeks who had preeclampsia. And in her expert opinion, um, mom had to be delivered. She was in a hospital where they had residents and one of the residents refused to scrub with my colleague. She said, no, you know, you're committing malpractice. I'm not, I'm not gonna scrub with you because the baby is not 39 weeks. And so my colleague, you know, who has, she was my chief resident and she just looked at her and said, okay. And got someone to um, do the section. After the baby was born, my colleague took the placenta, the baby's placenta, that was so small, it fit in the palm of her hand. And she went back to the chief, you know, to this resident and said, do you see this placenta? Do you see how small it is? Do you think this baby would be able to sustain life, continue to sustain life with a placenta this small? And then of course, um, you know, the resident had to wipe the egg off her face. So these are um, stories that I like to share because um, I think I think a healthcare provider who has empathy really makes a difference. So it's not only important in terms of the type of care that you receive, but it's also important in terms of who you see to take care of you. I will take a breath. <laughs> Oh, you need it. Those are such amazing stories. I mean, I tell you, I watched your symposium three times at least because I love hearing them. For me, it's just like proof in the pudding about all of this, you know, like you said, knowing the movements, also the parent feeling comfortable with the provider to be able to say certain things mm -hmm. and even to be alert to the situation, because if we don't talk about stillbirth as a potential risk for everyone, some of us, I mean, I never thought it could happen to me and my family because I had a low risk, healthy textbook pregnancy. And, you know, I was a young woman who was doing all the right things. And I 
had a daughter already. Like this was not on my, you know, horizon. Like I had no clue. So I was very blindsided by the whole thing. And fetal movement was never discussed in any detail. Mm -hmm. um, they would say like, oh, is your baby moving okay today? That sort of comment. And then you're like, yeah, of course they're moving. You know, my son's mm -hmm. always moving. Um, but it was never like, okay, well, there should be a pattern. And at some point, if you ever notice the changing, please come in right away because that could be indication of a problem. And I really wished I had those conversations because I did everything. I mean, I wasn't eating sushi. I love sushi. I was giving up everything that I needed to, you know, I didn't even have a drop of coffee in that pregnancy. So, yeah. you know, we will do what we need to do if we know about it. If we don't know, how can we do it? and do anything different. I mean, even to talk about side sleep. I mean, I did that because I read it somewhere, but a doctor never told me anything that that might help with, with the blood flow to the placenta and that sort of thing. So, and like you just mentioned, preeclampsia, we don't all get any information on that. And that can happen to anybody all of a sudden your blood pressure. Anyone. Yeah. So it makes me very sad for your first case. And I know I would have been really heartbroken and upset working so hard for her to get her baby and that happened you know yeah. so up the ball and that must be tough for you as a provider if you have to hand off a patient and just kind of trust that the person you're working with will do the same that you would do yeah so what I realized um what I realize now um now that we are in another generation um it's a different kind of healthcare system mm -hmm. um I am sadly surprised at the things that don't get done in terms of patient care. And I think part of it, um, you know, I, I trained at Harlem Hospital where there was a lot of diversity. Um, we had people, our, our attending physicians were from all over the world, from the Philippines, from India, um, from Ghana, from South Africa. Um, as well as, you know, being U.S. physicians. And what that, di that type of diversity um, did was it, it broadened our horizon as training physicians because we, we got a, a, um, exposed to a lot of different ways to treat people. But the mission was also always... Um, Failure is not an option. And failure is a woman who doesn't bring her baby home. That was ingrained in our heads. And so we looked for things. We didn't wait until the problem found us. We had a heightened sense of being very vigilant about taking care of patients to the point where my colleague who I mentioned uh, was in New Guinea, halfway around the world. And she's calling the labor room to find out about one of her patients. Um, I'm home on vacation. Um, I had to work in Louisiana to pay off a, non, uh, a National Health Service Corps obligation. But I had a patient who um, was older it was a very unique situation because her and her daughter were pregnant at the same time. And so the last time she was pregnant was like 21 years ago. And she had a baby who had um, hemolytic anemia. 
And it was very controversial because of her faith, certain things couldn't be done. And I would call that labor room every day to find out what, I, I would call the NICU to find out what was going on with Miss so-and-so. Because that's how, that's who we are, you know, as, as empaths. Unfortunately, um, healthcare is a business now, you know, um, and in any business, the mission is profit. But business practices are incongruent with medical practice. And so that becomes a big problem. One of the things um, during the symposium, I, you know, I heard a story about someone and she had a, an adverse outcome. Yeah. And I listened to her story and I just silently shook my head because um, she had complained about decreased fetal movement and the nurse put her on a monitor and it sounded like she didn't have the full comprehensive test in turn, I don't know whether it was a non-stress test or whether it was a biophysical profile, but <clears throat> based on staffing shortages, it sounded like she just heard the baby, the nurse heard the baby's heartbeat and said, oh, okay, you're fine. And had that woman had the benefit of a full non-stress test, which is at minimum 20 minutes or a biophysical profile, looking at all of the things that the baby is supposed to do, breathe, move the arms, <clears throat> looking at the fluid, I am almost certain that her outcome would have been different. And so this is the problem that unfortunately pregnant individuals now have to deal with. You have to deal with having a baby in a system that functions to a greater extent like a business. And you can't cut, you cannot cut corners in medicine. You can't, because when you do that, you're setting yourself up for problems. So one of the things in terms of advocacy that I would recommend is that if anyone is supposed to have a, uh, a diagnostic test to ensure fetal well-being, know the rule. It's 20 minutes, and there are certain parameters that are supposed they are supposed to see. Um, learn, you know, I, I'm not, I won't give a lesson on, you know, fetal surveillance, but there are rules, you know, things, data that they're supposed to see. And if no, if someone can't do it because they're short-staffed, that's a major league problem. And if if you feel like you have not received the full benefit of the test, go higher. Okay, ask, you know, don't accept the kind of care that is inconsistent with what you are supposed to receive. If the, um, you know, if it's a nursing staff issue, ask to speak to the director of nursing and, you know, say, insist I am here because obviously I need to be watched closer 
based on whatever risk factor, gestational diabetes or hypertension or, you know, not feeling the baby move. Don't let them shortchange you because of business issues. So I want to ask you about NSTs because I do know some parents who had those and then the next time they went in for like appointment, the baby wasn't alive anymore. Is that really that helpful? I mean, I know you can catch things when they're doing it and maybe mm -hmm. the person longer if they feel like they need to keep looking at them. But what do you think about those situations? Because I feel like it, it almost gives you a false reassurance. Like I just got that NST done, I'm home. And now the next time I feel a change, I'm going to tell myself, no, I already got checked out. Everything's fine. And I'm going tomorrow or whatever to the appointment. So I know that there are situations like that. So is it, you know, just making sure parents know, I guess, that that's not foolproof and it's not actually telling them more than just in those few hours, things are looking good. So keep track of the movement still when you go home, right? Like keep, keep on the ball with that. Well, a lot of, you know, um, medicine is not like a recipe, you know, and I think that's another thing that I'm seeing that is very sad. It's about clinical information. And so number one, you have to know why are they having a non-stress test? You know, what is the indication? Because two people can have the same non-stress test for very different reasons. And if the non-stress test is not reactive, you know, meaning that you've seen two accelerations in 20 minutes, uh, 15 beats above the baseline that lasts for 15 seconds, that's a problem. That is not a reactive non-stress test. So maybe the issue could have been the uh, non-stress test was misread. It wasn't done long enough. But if the NST is not reactive, then you have to move to the next step, which is the biophysical profile, which I personally personally love because you are watching the baby. Because remember, the whole thing is, it comes down to the breath, oxygen. Is the baby receiving enough oxygen? Is something compromising the delivery to, uh, the, the delivery of oxygen to the baby? So in a biophysical profile, we look at movement, okay? Is the baby moving? Is it flexing its arms, because when there's a, a you know, a, de a deficit of oxygen, everything is going to go to the baby's brain, okay? And so the skeletal muscles are the last thing that's going to receive the O2, the oxygen. So looking at the, the number of times the baby breathes and the number of times the baby moves is very helpful clinical information. But again, that takes time. And if someone is short-staffed, or not trained, you know, they may not know that, well, that trace, they, now they're supposed to be tested, okay? Everybody is supposed to be credentialed and tested in terms of being efficient um, to read a non-stress test. But the bottom line is that if there is any doubt, you go to the next step. And I, I imagine that that is not happening. No, I don't think it is. And I think parents, we obviously trust the provider because we don't know medicine and we don't even know what just happened in that test. Like, right? oh, you're clear, you're good to go home. You know, like, you're like, oh, great. I feel so much better, you know? 
go home and mm -hmm. relax now and stop freaking out. So it is difficult for the parent, especially if you don't know about stillbirth, which is why we talk about it so much. I think we have to name this risk, just like mm -hmm. you can talk about SIDS now. I mean, it's an awful thing to think about, but y'all know about SIDS now and you know how to lay your baby to sleep the right way. Right not over swaddle and you know not over make them too hot whatever there's so many great tips now that we didn't have in the past and we are seeing a decrease in SIDS so you know stillbirth has to be handled the same way we can't be afraid to tell parents you know there is a risk one out of 170 might not seem high but we do all um, know a lot of people I mean that's it's going to happen unfortunately somebody in your circle at some point and so you do need to be aware of this and you know it happened in low-risk pregnancy it happened in mine and in many cases it is a low-risk pregnancy is a higher risk factor for stillbirth um and also you know obviously we can talk about equity just a little bit as far as you know black families experiencing double the rate have you seen in your practices like why is that really occurring and you know what is the problem there i mean i think a lot of people are now talking it's race you know racism involved not the race itself but the way that they're being treated and not listened to quite as well by the provider perhaps you know if there's a concern maybe they don't really hear it is there anything else you want to add to that? well i think i think um i think it's bias you know people have preconceived um opinions and unfortunately those opinions carry on into their professional career uh, which makes things very difficult. Now, I'm not in, I'm no longer in active practice in terms of, you know, seeing on a daily basis how people are treated. But recently, um, I came across a, a very sad situation um, in one of these Facebook groups. Um, you know, there's, you know, a group of people who have experienced a, a certain, um, risk factor okay and unfortunately one of them the mothers um experienced an infant loss of 25 weeks um her prior pregnancy was high risk because she and she was you know she's african-american her prior pregnancy was at 37 weeks um with preeclampsia the person who she saw for the last pregnancy did not think she was high risk. And that was wrong, number one. Then secondly, um, she was a candidate, she should have received aspirin, baby aspirin, uh, anywhere from 12 to 28 weeks, but the optimal time to receive that is at 16 weeks. This provider discussed giving it to her at 28 weeks. So that's a red flag right there. But what hurt broke my heart was that everyone in the room was talking about um their experiences and two things happened that really annoyed me um the young lady um and i i'm gonna blog about her so i have permission to discuss her case it's not you know like i'm violating any hipaa uh rule because she gave me permission to talk about it um Number one, she had the HELP syndrome. And so unfortunately, um, her infant expired. And the information that was being disseminated in the room was number one, well, 
the help syndrome is um, there's nothing you can do about it. The um, the treatment is delivery, you know, and so and it, you know, I, I know you're not going to like this, but there's nothing you can do about that. And I um, I was so number one, I was annoyed because you have all of this medical advice being circulated by people who may have experienced things but they don't have the clinical training to back up what they're saying. And what they're saying is incorrect. And secondly, I thought about, um, she was incorrect because I had a patient who was 27 weeks. Um, she had uh, adverse outcome for her first pregnancy and no one knew why. Well, her mom didn't know why, she didn't know why. But for her second pregnancy, I took care of her and her platelets were dropping. And I said, okay, you have health syndrome, let's go, I'm delivering you. Now, luckily, you know, the hospital that I was in, it was in Louisiana, but they had a, an outstanding neonatologist. And so two years later, okay, so first of all, the mom, you know, baby delivered at 27 weeks and her mother um, asked me, she said, what does my daughter have? And I explained to her help, et cetera, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. Um, and again, the way I train, you don't wait for a problem to, you look for the problem. So when those platelets were dropping, I knew right then and there, okay, boom, we gotta go, because this is it. Two years later, I'm in a different part of Louisiana and I see this little two-year-old wearing this cute outfit with an Easter bonnet, you know, flipped to the side. And that was my 27 weeker. And so when I hear this woman in this chat room telling this poor young lady that there's nothing that can be done, you know, but again, you know, I, try, I, I stay in my lane. I'm not the, you know, it wasn't an active conversation, but I'm, I'm looking at, and it came across my feet because normally I don't even go into that room anymore because it's just the, the, the misinformation just annoys me. But I reached out to her, I DM'd her privately. And I talked to her and explained some of the things that some of some of her options for the future and some of some of her options now. She was the only one in that room that did not know what a maternal fetal medicine specialist was. I wanted to cry because many other people in that room did know what an MFM was who didn't look like her. She was a perfect candidate to be sent to an MFM. And if she gets pregnant in the future, she knows that's what she has to do. So is that an example of racism? I think it's an example of her provider looking at her, looking at her, you know, the color of her skin and the tattoos and everything else that they may have, you know, a bias about and just, not giving her the kind of care that she should receive. And so my goal for the rest of my remaining years on this earth is to empower women and them and they, um, whatever pronoun you want to use. But if you are contemplating becoming pregnant or if you are pregnant, I am on a mission to let you know the kind of care that you should be receiving so that you can advocate 
for yourself because we are now this whole healthcare system, you know, again, it yeah, it is racism, but you have to go deeper than that. It is now a business. I can see that. And I can see like if you don't ask, you don't get, right? And if a person doesn't know, we don't ask. You don't so, know what you don't know. Right. So it's unfortunate because had you spoken to her prior, you know, her baby could possibly be here. She could have known to demand what she needed. Or change or change the provider. Mm-hmm. You know, I my goal, my my mantra is go where you are celebrated, not tolerated. If people aren't giving you the kind of respect that you deserve for being a human being, then don't continue to expose yourself to that. You have options. And one of the things that I'm working on, you know, along with some other people is um, uh, developing an OBGYN directory, a black OBGYN directory, not for the exclusive use of black patients. Anyone is welcome. Okay. But we represent 2.5% of the workforce. Yet 15% of women look like me. And so there has to be a way that they can find us because it, you know it's about shared experiences. It's about you know respect. I took, and it's about cultural competence. Most of my patients were Latinas. Okay, so I had to learn the culture. And it was, you know, there's, you know, it's it's a diaspora. People, women from Venezuela are very different from women from Puerto Rico, who are very different from Santo Domingo, you know, from women from Spain. I had to learn all of that in order for me to be an effective clinician. And it was a joyful experience because my horizon expanded. So that's also, you know, I think part of the empowerment, going somewhere to see someone who who celebrates you. I love that. I'm a Latina too, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> actually, I'm putting on an event with Count the Kicks this month to educate on fetal movement in Spanish. So Good. that virtually, if anyone wants to check that out, I'll share it again on our page. But I think it's important for everyone to understand exactly what's going on with their baby and that they do have that power, that they should be able to feel comfortable speaking out about it. And I feel like there's some stigma, maybe if you start to feel like something's wrong, you might get a little bit frightened, like you don't want to admit it almost, like there might be something wrong with your your pregnancy, but you shouldn't be afraid to say it and be checked out and get that higher level of care. I think that's kind of what we're finding a lot of people like, oh, I don't want to go to a high risk doctor. That means my baby's in trouble. But it's like, no, if no. Baby, you need that, you know. No, so, it means that. it means that you are going to be taken care of by someone who has the highest level of training. Because MFMs have um, an additional three year fellowship. When I was training, it was two years, but now it's three it's a higher level of care. And here's the thing. Um, fear is, I don't want to use the word dangerous form of energy, but it is um, part of getting to the journey of a healthy, out, a favorable outcome is your mindset. Because I'm 
again, you know, I've been called a woo-woo uh, in the past. Um, whatever you think about expands, okay? So if you're focusing on the problem, the problem, the problem, then you are, I'm not gonna say you, you're bringing that to you, but that's what you focus on. You can have a problem, but there's also a solution to the problem, okay? And that's what you want. You want to say, okay, listen, so I may have some, you know, I may have some potential risk factors, but I'm going to go to someone who's going to guide me based on their level of expertise on how to get to the other side of that. And maybe nothing will happen. But if, you know, but if, if you're in a situation where there's the potential for something to happen, at least you know you're in good can you're in good hands. It's not going to it's not going to be a situation where someone's caught off guard. And I think that is a major problem with a lot of um, new school um, providers. They get caught off guard because they're not looking for it. They're not prepared for it. That's why I like California because, and, and I like, um, and, and this is another thing that when women are looking in terms of who their providers are, and where they should go. Um, one of the things that you should inquire about are: Do you do simulations? Do you do simulations for postpartum postpartum hemorrhage? Do you do simulations in terms of preeclampsia? Simulations, you know, are like um, like training test. And California was one of the first states to actually um, promote that um, toolkit because based on their research, but it works. If you know, if you if you have someone who's coming through the door and they have a problem and you know you've done the drill like a hundred times, you're ready. And that that is a great comfort. Yeah, I will say my doctors were off guard when they had my situation come in the door and I felt like nobody really took it to the next level very quickly. Took a whole hour mm. for the on-call doctor to arrive. And then they told me they're bringing me in for a crash C-section. And I was like unaware the entire time that there was a problem. And, you know, they crashed C-section me without my husband there yet and everything. And it was just the worst traumatic delivery ever. And to wake up, everyone was just shocked that my son didn't survive. And they were crying and it was just like, what happened here? And, you know, I'm asking, why did he die? And they're just like, we don't know. Sometimes healthy babies just die. And I'm like, oh. Who says that to a mother? Like my son was healthy this entire pregnancy and you don't know what happened and they didn't do anything to help me find a cause. So did they, did they offer, and you wouldn't have to accept it, but did they offer an autopsy? They did. I think their plan though was to talk me out of it because they, the NICU nurse, who's the one or doctor that was supposed to resuscitate, uh, she came in and told me all the stuff about it that was wrong with it pretty much, made it sound really horrible and that it may not be covered by insurance and they may not find anything. So they very much talked me out of it. And I was very traumatized, you know, like I didn't want anything done to my son at that time, but right. yeah. I was like, no, I mean, it sounds like it's useless. So why do this, you know? Well, well, let me say this, and this is very important in terms of, you know, your listening audience, you don't have to have an autopsy, but you can certainly have the placenta sent to pathology because you know, one of the roles that I had um, was uh, almost for 20 years, I was a contractor for the federal government and they um, financed 
community health centers. And so if there was a problem in terms of a community, you know, at a community health center where there was an adverse outcome, one of the first things they would want to know is did the provider keep the standard of care? And every medical review, there is supposed to be, if there was an adverse outcome, there is supposed to be a pathology report from the about the placenta to determine you know, if there was any abnormalities. So no, you don't have to, um, you don't have to consent for an autopsy, but having the placenta reviewed by a pathologist is very, very important. And I am so sorry to hear what happened to you and your son. My son. I'm so sorry. I will say that so they did, I think, do something with the placenta, but it was useless. And so that's why I'm also an advocate for the Shine for Autumn Act, which is going to help train pathologists um, and also obviously make everyone um, collect the data the same way and have proper research available, you know, information for research. Because the people who did it at my hospital found nothing. They just told me nothing abnormal. Placenta looked mm -hmm. fine. Like, I don't know what they even looked at. And now six years later that I've been in this work, I got Dr. Kleiman to do his report. And he, you know, he's a specialist at this. He's at Yale University. And mm -hmm. he was able to, within days, get this from them and find out a definitive cause, which is cord compressions. And um, he did have a little bit large placenta, but that he didn't think was the factor. It was the cord compressions for a few days prior that caused the crash, basically, for my son Owen. And yeah, it has helped me a lot in my healing journey because I thought for all this time, like, what could it possibly been? You know, it must have been mm -hmm. something I had done, you know, and that's horrible to live with the weight on your shoulders and also to try to become pregnant again. You know, you can't go into pregnancy blind like I did and expect that you're going to be able to be calm. You know, I was just in a panic over every little movement change. And, and that's so, I, I feel, experience. yeah, so um, cord compression, so did you experience decreased fetal movement before? I only noticed it that night and my son was very active always. And I almost, um, because I didn't have proper education on it. My doctor right. just gave me the pamphlet when I got pregnant. He said, oh, it should have been in your pamphlet when you did your first scan, you know, at eight weeks. I'm like, really? So you just tossed it in there. You never discussed it again when I started to actually have movement. Okay, you know, and I had a meeting with him recently where I tried to explain like, you might want to give it a little more importance because that could have been, you know, a sign for me Yeah, a few days sooner. And yeah. so I didn't remember, you know, any other change. And, you know, he kicked a lot. And I know a lot of parents who say like they notice a increase before a cord accident, like frantic, you know, kicking. Yeah. Because the, it's, it's, um, because again, it's all about the oxygen. So, you know, the increased movement and sometimes, um, if there's hypoxia, you know, low oxygen, the heart rate will go up, you know, the baby will have tachycardia um, <clears throat> because it's trying, you know, to breathe basically. Um, one of the things that, um, that women can also, and, you know, individuals can look at, I'm sorry, I use the word women. Um, I have to get used to saying people. Um, um, people can look at is um, the grade of the placenta because again you know like with with 
when my colleague delivered this baby at 32 or 33 weeks, the placenta was extremely small. So there are three grades of placenta. There's grade one, grade two, grade three. And that's important information because grade three means that it's an old placenta. Mm. You know, it's calcified and it's like on its last leg and you don't know how long, you know, the baby's going to be able to sustain oxygen because the placenta is old. So that is something that when um, someone gets an ultrasound report, you can ask, okay, so what, you know, what was the grade of my placenta? And, you know, they may sit back for a minute and that's okay. Is that something they would do though for a low risk pregnancy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part, yeah. Um, You're looking at the anatomy and the placenta is part of it. Now, you know, new school, I don't know. I don't know what they do new school, but when I train, you know, the grade of the placenta was, was given because it's important, Mm -hmm. you know, and a grade three placenta is like, okay, heads up again, you know, see, that's how I trained, you know, at Harlem. It was like heads up. So a grade three placenta is okay. Increased awareness, increased um, surveillance, possibly. The other thing that's important is the uh, amount of fluid around the baby because, um, you know, the number for delivery is five, but when it reaches seven, that's like a yellow flag. And when I would have patients who had uh, an AFI, amniotic fluid index of seven, then I would want the ultrasound to be repeated, looking at the fluid, because seven is, it's, it's not as uh, reassuring as eight or nine. So these are, you know, all the things as a clinician um, that are helpful information in terms of making a sure, you know, assuring fetal uh, well-being. Right. It's something that parents should definitely do, especially in summer when you're pregnant during the summers, hydration, like as much as you freaking can. Like I know I I went overboard probably, but I was like, there's going to be so much fluid in there for this baby, you know, because my baby after loss, I was very careful, but I have read in studies that you know there are more stillbirths happening and because of environmental issues you know the mm-hmm. world is getting hotter so mm-hmm. be careful with that you know it's very important mm-hmm. um, yeah and I think all that you're saying is awesome and I think you definitely should go forward with your idea of doing some kind of pregnancy guide and that sort of thing because parents only hear about the fluffy stuff from what is out there and this is something that I have never heard discussions about the placenta grade ever. <laughs> Like okay. as a parent, as a pregnant person, and mm-hmm. I would have wanted to know that because I could have easily been sitting there and said, "Wait, what's this at?" You know, and be more aware and be able to yeah. say, "Well, that's a yellow flag." Like, let's keep in track next visit. I want to know it again. You know, mm-hmm. because unfortunately, Absolutely. like you said, it's a systemic problem. Uh, we are seeing different doctors, a lot of us, and the way the system is run. So, unless mm-hmm. you happen to have a PPO and you go to just one provider, but a lot of times you're bouncing around providers and they don't remember you. They don't know you particularly. So if they have the paperwork in front of them, they're just going to go by what it is today. And like, maybe they'll look at the last one and it was okay, you know, but if you had like a condition or you had some sort of symptoms that you reported last time, and this doctor doesn't really see that, you know, it can slip through the cracks. And there's a lot of situations I feel like, and the losses that I've heard where it was really sad because if someone was really listening to them, Mm-hmm. somebody's baby could have been saved and I, it's hard for us as lost parents and I advocate I share my story 
And I know mm-hmm. a lot of parents who are doing that, but it takes like a lot from us to admit that maybe there was a prevention available because you don't want to say that. You want to think that your baby died for whatever they, they were going to die regardless. But I think knowing that there is prevention, we have to keep sharing our stories so that other people can be more aware and act a little bit more alert and take action and demand if they need to, if they're in a situation where they're not being heard. Mm-hmm. You can't just keep losing babies. I mean, this has been for centuries, <laughs> same stillbirth rate. You know, obviously there's a complacency. There's people who think stillbirth just happens. Babies are going to die. And that's just the fact of life. And it's not. 60%. It's- that is what motivates me. 60% are preventable. That means um, out of 24,000 lost babies, 14,000 could have been saved. So I look at, I look at the lost babies as angels who are beacons of light, who are shining so that other babies can have safe arrivals. So even they are, they're like martyrs who, um, you know, who, who left us for a greater cause. And I know that, um, I know that may not make moms, parents feel better, but I think that's the only way that I could look at it without listening to your story and going into fits of anger yeah no I agree and I think that for some reason when it happened I was just like you know destroyed like why my son why me you know this is horrible and I did everything I was doing everything right I had a daughter already everyone expected this baby to survive nobody warned me that there was nothing you know and I was just so angry and then eventually I did start to think like, why not me? It could have been someone else weaker who couldn't handle it, who, you know, would have took her life. I mean, I have the strength to keep going. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my son gave that to me. Yeah. And you honor that because the work that you, that's why um, I, I love seeing the activism um, at the ground level because that is where change happens. Yeah, you know, it's important to go to DC, absolutely. But DC only listens when they have rumblings in the, on the ground level. You know? Oh, there's gonna be a big rumble and uh, the big push is going to Washington DC too, October 15th. Anybody who wants to join us for the big push march, uh, we're gonna have as many people as possible with empty strollers pushing that around Washington, D.C., we have plans for it to be also available virtually on satellite events around the country. So if you cannot come in person, please still do something in your hometown and you can use our hashtag, which is Big Push 2022, and we'll make you a part of the event by sharing that out. It's not just Push um, Pregnancy doing that one, Push for Empowered Pregnancy. It's a bunch of different organizations 
that are all committed to stillbirth prevention. Also, our partners, the doctors, we have a lot of people coming out to march with us and speak out. We have a stage there, so there'll be a lot of discussion. And I think it is about making the noise and just mm -hmm. making people aware that it is preventable. And it's, you know, it is sad to think, oh, my son could be here had I had this better care, but I don't think that's a reason for me to be quiet. I think that's a reason for me to shout because- Absolutely. It's a stop. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the optics of that is going to be powerful, empty strollers. Yeah, that will get you uh, a seat at the table. Yeah, we're definitely going to make our babies proud. I think anybody who wants to be a part of that, please go to the bigpushmarch.org. Um, and that's where you can sign up just to register so you can be a part of it, whether or not you can actually get to D.C., you can mark down that you want to be there virtually and we'll have different options for you to share that on social media. So we want to, you know, honor your children mm -hmm. and they matter. And I think that's another important part of this work is because my son Owen matters so much to me, I'm never going to stop. And that's a beautiful thing. And you will make a difference. You, you guys are making a difference now because you have rainbow clinics that was that you know that didn't come from ACOG no. that came from y'all <laughs> that came from Fernanda Sheridan and then it came through everyone at push you know backing her and her dream but honestly it's one of those things where you say it and you think well there's no way we can do that you know we're just moms we're, we're what are you gonna do with that right and we need a lot of money and right now we're actually fundraising for that if anyone wants to donate to the Rainbow Clinic please go to the tinyurl.com slash Rainbow Clinic 2022 and you can donate any amount you can. You can also help sponsor the big push if you're a company organization, especially if you're involved with any baby products. I mean, these are a lot of babies we could save and families can continue to care for. And we have nurseries full for them. I mean, they were, the saddest thing for me is getting new friends on social media that find me because I'm public with my account, still my son, uh, about my journey and people find me and I have to look back at their previous posts because I want to get to know them and I see they had a beautiful baby shower everybody was so excited and then the next picture is I'm so sorry to announce my baby has died you know this is what happened and it's just so heartbreaking because it doesn't have to keep happening and that's I think the number one goal for our DC trip next week I'll be there on Sunday and a lot of other advocates will be there Debbie from the Shine Act and Healthy Birthday with their act uh, for count the kicks it's just necessary for everyone to know that it is preventable and it's not like we're just crying about it and sad you know there are things to be done and we just have to make it a priority and make sure that people know and it doesn't have a big dollar amount to it it's about talking about it it's about informing the parents properly and about you know listening to them mm -hmm. cdc has that hear her campaign yeah. You know, listen to the patients. If they are complaining, then go the next step. Don't just do the basic care that they're supposed to get because they're low risk. It's not fair. Well, I donated um, to the campaign proudly. Um, and I, um, like I said, I am extremely pleased to see this level of activity because that's, that is how things are going to change. It's, you know, change comes from within. So I salute you. Oh, thank you. We're so happy to have you on our side and all your stories. I mean, I think that for me, when I share them also on the sacred birth circle, I like to share 
all the people. There have been so many comments just on one of my reels that blew up on social media. It's have, I think it's over 8 million views. It's really been incredible to see people reacting about the fetal movement. Um, and they're sharing a lot of safe stories as well as, you know, sadly stillbirths, which mm -hmm. happened because the parent wasn't properly informed and the, or the provider didn't listen. So I hear all the sides of this, but to me, it just cements the idea that, you know, we do have an ability to save babies here. And Absolutely. they just give me chills. They're like, oh, there was a cord around my baby's neck and I felt something was wrong, but I didn't know that I came in and they delivered. And sure enough, because if I hadn't come in like that hour, something could have happened. And, you know, initially when you were talking about the woo-woo stuff, I want to say that's not just woo-woo. I think it's actually very common for parents to have the intuition that something's wrong. No, 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 no. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of parents, um, um, I say woo-woo in, in jest um, because, um, because the traditional, um, yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know, the traditional uh, way, you know, the traditional education is um, studies and didactics and blah, 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 blah. But no one, and I, and I am a mother myself, and I am an adoptive mother. I did not, like I say, push my sons out of my wounds, but I dare anyone to tell me that I am not a mother. All mothers have intuitions about their babies. Mm -hmm. Every last one of them. And that is not by accident. It is by design at a much higher level. I, you know, I, you are, the mom is the carrier. The baby is the passenger. Babies cannot speak to us, you know, in whatever our native language is, but they do talk to us. They do communicate. And there is a defined time of their arrival. Sometimes, you know, and we laugh about it, you know, like we'll say, you know, when we have to do a section, oh, okay, he's acting out. Okay. We know you want to be born. Okay, we 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 heard you. We're you know we're we're going to do this. Um, they the heart rate might drop. Okay, um, mom may start bleed. Something happens, and I I honestly believe that this is their way of saying it is time for me to come. It's like you know, unfortunately, the, the due date is not <laughs> written in stone. You know, it's not like a flight schedule, <laughs> but they talk to us. They let us know. I'm going to tell you a real short, a real short story. Um, so I'm delivering this baby, right? I have a patient, so first pregnancy, big baby. It's a, it's a, what do you call it? A, a, a breach. And so I have to do a section because, you know, I don't do, some people may try that. That's not me. So I'm doing this section, right? And when I, open up when I make the incision in the uterus, this big fat leg and foot steps out of the incision and onto my surgical field. I had never seen anything like that before in my life. He actually stepped out of the incision and I said, 
you are so fresh, you cannot even wait until I can deliver you. So they have their personalities, you know, they, you know, yeah, they don't speak to us in a, you know, in whatever language, but they do, but they do talk to us. And as a mom, you understand. And so it's your job, okay, to let whoever's taking care of you know, this is my baby. I am carrying him or her. And you, as a clinician, part of your training is to take a chief complaint, which means I have a problem and this is what it is. And this is why I tell people, if you're not listening to me, you are not listening to my chief complaint. And that's a breach of the standard of care. So I want everybody to remember that. Yeah, and I will say from some of the Silva research I've read is actually the feeling of impending doom and like something is very wrong is noted in research. And a lot of the stories and, you know, anecdotal um, stories I've learned from my family, my friends now, I call them family, my chosen family. Mm -hmm. um, so they definitely, we all have this feeling prior that something is going on. So listen to that and don't quiet that just because- no being crazy or your doctor doesn't take it seriously enough who cares Just and I'm a board certified OBGYN physician I have a master's degree from Columbia I'm Ivy League and I'm here to tell you don't let people talk you out of your truth mm -hmm. okay and I will say in my case since my son was two months early I had mm. never heard of stillbirth before so I didn't know that that was a thing like he could be dying right now so that's why I do think, again, we have to talk about these different stories. And just to say, like, if I had the idea that stillbirth existed, you know, like a low risk pregnancy, everything going perfect can result in a stillbirth. Maybe I would have noticed some change prior and be like, you know what, I'd rather have my baby out inside of a NICU. And like, maybe I would have said something, but I didn't notice. I didn't know I wasn't on point. Like I wasn't alert to that. Yeah. I, so I think about it. Think about it like, you know, so that, think about it like putting on a, a seatbelt, okay? Um, you get, a, you board a plane and you put on a seatbelt. It doesn't mean you're going to crash because you put the seatbelt on. So knowing that there is, you know, a remote possibility of stillbirth doesn't mean that it's going to happen. But just knowing about it means that you have your seatbelt on. Mm -hmm. I love any analogy with planes. We use those a lot because first of all, the amount of stillbirths that are happening, I think it's about like one play, plane crash a week or something like that. I mean, there's mm. different things, but also we talk about, we tell everyone when you get aboard a plane, what to do if this plane is crashing, yet the odds of that happening aren't actually that high, but we still tell everyone and we tell them how you're supposed to behave and what you should do next. We don't have a plan here. There's no protocol Parents don't know, and, and the doctors don't even know. They don't have the protocol on their end of how to treat a change in fetal movement. So it's all like, let's see what happens, you know, at this point. Well, so if, if there is, then, you know, respectfully, I'm going to say, if there is a change, then that's when the surveillance kicks in, okay? It's not like it goes in one ear and out the other. There should be action taken. And that means that, okay, surveillance is just a big word that means watch that means that we have to watch you closer we have to watch the baby closer and that makes the difference between 
a good outcome and an adverse outcome? Is somebody watching me enough? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think it's on all ends, you know, we need to emphasize that. And hopefully with all the noise we're making and then this month, next month, and we probably won't stop making noise, but we have some really huge events coming. So we hope you all be a part of that. And whether or not you've had a stillbirth or know someone who's had one, this is something that can happen to any pregnancy, unfortunately, and you don't want it to happen to anybody in your friend and family group. So please be a part of the change, you know, support the bills that we're pushing, make sure that we actually get proper care and education. It's both, you know, it's not just one or the other. And, you know, Count the Kicks is doing a great job just spreading the message here. If you need the app, it's a free app. You can download it to your phone. We talked about it a little bit before coming on here, but it's not just getting to do that daily kick count. It's also understanding your baby throughout the day. What is the personality as we kind of chatted about tonight? Mm -hmm. You know, my baby is usually very active. So don't worry about, oh, he's very quiet now, but earlier today he was fine. Well, no, if you think he should still be active after dinner, then there might've been a change. So go ahead and go in and get checked out. It's okay to go in, you know, I don't know financially. I mean, unfortunately our system may not cover everything for everyone, but hopefully, you know, you can go in. I know fetal movement is taken very seriously. So as long as you say, I, I think something's wrong, I feel something's different, they should be able to take care of you. I used to always, um, I used to tell patients like, okay, if you don't feel the baby move, you know, drink something sweet and see if, if um, you see an increase in the movement. If you've done that and you still don't feel, you know, see a difference and definitely um, you need to talk to somebody. Mm. For my patients, you know, I would then, I would activate the fetal surveillance um, protocol, but okay. yeah. Yeah, I mean, Count the Kicks actually now is saying not to even do that because they think we're kind of delaying a care and okay. situation, maybe it's best to just go right in. Okay. Uh, if you already have the feeling. I think that's what, like, I really resonate with this conversation. If you have a feeling something has, yes. yeah. trust that. Don't worry and call your doctor. Like, is this normal for most babies? Like, no, you know, it's normal for your baby. Your right. doctor is trying to handle all these babies and he, they know what's like generally okay. You know, they might tell you even 10 kicks in two hours, which is also outdated kind of advice. You need to know what your pattern is, what your baby normally kicks at, like, or moves. You know, we're not just talking about kicks, it's movements and mm -hmm. behavior. So um, number one for me really is trust your gut instinct at that point and go right in and, you know, God yeah. forbid anything's going on, but if it is, they can take action and they can get involved, you know, as fast as possible, which is important yes. those interventions if they are offered, because I know we didn't get into it on our conversation tonight, but I've talked about it a lot. Like there's a lot of conversation on social media that they don't want interventions. They don't want you to allow a doctor to even think about C-section your baby. And they feel like, you know, they have to say no to everything it has to be a natural birth. And yeah, that is probably what everybody's goal is. But if your doctor recognizes a problem, you have to trust them and you have to have a good relationship that you know, you're going to listen in those situations because it could be life or death for your baby and for yourself even, you know, it's quite, a lot of these issues are quite related to maternal mortality as well. So yeah, absolutely. I'd, yeah. I'd, from the get-go, have a good relationship with your doctor. And if you don't like them already, then you probably should change doctors. If you feel like they're just going to schedule you because they want to go on vacation, well, that shouldn't be the doctor you're with. 
That's not the standard of care. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Bottom the line. doctor will listen to you and will do what's needed properly, you know, for your baby and for you. So make sure you have that relationship and take care of Share your decision-making mm -hmm. and very much informed decision-making too, because that's part of the problem is we don't get all the risk and information. We're not really informed. We don't really Mm. know what's going on with that pregnancy so thank mm. you so much dr burke and i could talk You're to welcome. you probably three hours but we'll keep this one to one <laughs> okay but i appreciate your time and sharing everything that you're doing and i look forward to seeing your guide and anything else you put out there because we'll be happy to share it because we need this we need you know actual information to share not just talking about the size of the fruit that you are this month <laughs> Well, I will say if anyone wants any additional information, um, I have a website, thesmartmothersguide.com. Awesome. I'd love to hear from you. Great. I'll put that in the links. Thank you so much, Dr. Burke. Have a good You're night. welcome. My pleasure. Good Thank luck in DC. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you learned some important information about stillbirth prevention from this episode, especially if you're a provider. It's the sense of urgency and watchful waiting that I think really resonates with me. Remember to share this episode on social media so you can help others in your circle grow their knowledge and have a better birth outcome. Remember that all the posts that we share and our episodes are not meant to be medical advice. We are simply trying to help you and inform you as you continue your pregnancy. But always remember that you should consult your provider if you have any questions or concerns. They're there to help you and they are available to you 24-7 even if you have to go into the hospital or ER. Again, follow us on social media to continue up to date with our next episodes and our posts. And feel free to connect with us in the DMs. If you have any questions, we would be happy to be there for you. You are not alone. This is your community. And we hope that you will continue to watch our future and past episodes to continue to add to your knowledge as we interview birth workers, providers, researchers, and even people who have experienced different births so that when you get to your birth, you'll be a little bit more informed and prepared for whatever comes your way. Goodbye for now.